Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you can hear me with this ridiculous fashion accessory on my head. It's never quite big enough. It feels very uncomfortable, but uh, here we are. We're in a, a series, as you will know, unless you've been on a desert island for a few months, um, a series called The King's Revolution. And uh, we're looking through... Paul's letter to the Romans, and today we're in chapter 4. We were in chapter 4 last week, looking at the first eight verses, but today we're looking at verses 9 to 25. In other words, the rest of the chapter. Today, I hope that you will go away with a number of, at least facts in your head, if not convictions in your heart. The first one is that God makes promises and keeps them. At the beginning of Paul's letter to Titus, it tells us that God does not lie. The ESV version says God never lies. So that means that the promises that God makes us are absolutely dependable. So God makes promises, God keeps promises, God does not lie. And in response to those promises, God is looking for simple, believing faith as the means of salvation. Nothing else, just fide sola, faith alone. Faith alone, nothing else. If you were paralysed from the eyebrows down, that would be a very uncomfortable position to be in, wouldn't it? But if the only thing you could do is wiggle your eyebrows, it wouldn't make any difference to your salvation. Because salvation is by faith alone. Now at the same time, conversion to Christ, Christianity is not an invitation to laziness or indolence. You could put your feet up for the rest of your life and still go to heaven. But God doesn't call us to that. He calls us to uh, a life of good works, a career of good works. And we know that in uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 10, God has prepared a career of good works for us to do. But those good works come after we're saved. Those good works are not the means of our salvation. I think it was Martin Luther who was in Rome one time and he was crawling up the uh, steps of St. Peter's on his knees feeling that in that way he would gain some credence with God, some credit with God. And the Holy Spirit reminded him of the verse that says uh, the just or the justified will live by faith. So he stood up. He didn't need to do that penance, crawling up the steps on his knees anymore, because he knew he was saved by faith. He's not saved by works. So go away today with the fact that, with the truth, that God is looking for simple, believing faith as the means of salvation. We are justified or put in right relationship with God simply by believing and trusting in him. Trusting in what he has 
said. We've got a number of grandchildren who live in Canada and uh, our eldest granddaughter was flying over at the beginning of September to start a medical degree in Exeter University. And uh, we arranged to pick her up from Gatwick. The only problem was we were going to drive in our motorhome and it's not very easy to get into a multi-storey car park at Gatwick with a motorhome. It tends to take the roof off. Uh, so we said, we will pick you up at half past nine at Hawley Railway Station. Hawley Railway Station is one station beyond Gatwick. It was a promise we made. She promised to be there. And uh, we du duly drove around Hawley a few, few times, finding the station, realising there was nowhere to park. Um, so we found Waitrose and parked in there. It was a Sunday morning, so it was empty. And we didn't have to go in and buy anything because before 10 o'clock, the doors are closed. Um, and we walked up to Hawley Railway Station and she was there. Beaming, without too much baggage. So we walked back to Waitrose, put her in the motorhome, drive down to Exeter. Um, we made a promise which we kept, and we made a promise which she believed. She acted upon it. She acted in response to the promise that we had made. And in the same way, God is looking for that same simple believing trust that when God says something, he will do it, and we respond by committing ourselves to that truth. And as I said earlier, we embrace a career of good works after we're saved. There's no crawling up steps on our knees. There's no being circumcised. There's no... There's nothing except faith in what God has said. I don't know if you remember Evangelism Explosion many years ago but you were taught to knock on someone's door and say, on what ground should God let you into heaven? Not, not the best sort of conversation opener, really, but that was the essence of it. It was challenging people to think about eternity, to think about God, to think about heaven, and to think about how do I get into heaven? Now, supposing I were to ask you that today, Assuming that heaven is real, I would imagine that everybody in this room today believes that heaven is real. What would you say were the general requirements for being admitted into heaven? Some people might say, because I have tried my best to be a good Christian. I won't ask you to put your hand up if you were going to say that. Because that would be salvation by work because you have tried your best to be a good Christian. That isn't the basis of our acceptance before God. Someone else might say, well, I believe God, sorry, I believe in God, and try to do his will. That is salvation by faith plus works. 
and you don't need the works. Someone else might say, well, I believe in God with all my heart. And you can look on that as salvation by faith as a work. Because we end up by having faith in our faith, by trusting in our trust. And that isn't how we are saved. The answer, of course, is I am trusting God and his promise to save me. There's nothing I can do except hold on to him. My faith is in him and in his ability alone. I don't have to contribute anything to it except trusting God. And most of us in this room would think, well, that's far too easy. Surely I've got to do something. Surely I've got to try and earn a bit of credit with God. And this is what the Judaizing Christians were bringing into the church in Rome. The church in Rome was a mixed congregation, not just men and women, not just slaves and free and freed people, but actually there were Jews who'd become Christians and there were non-Jews who'd become Christians. And amongst the Jews, there were those who believed and taught that to be a Christian, you had to embrace Judaism. You had to embrace the law. I don't know if you know anything about the Jewish law, but there are 613 laws. That's quite a lot of laws to obey. And what the Jews believed was that by obeying these laws, they were okay with God. And for them, the most important law was to be circumcised. For males at eight days of age to, to be circumcised. So if you were a non-Christian, sorry, if, you, if you, you were a non-Jew and you became a Christian, these guys said, well, you've got to enter fully into being a Jew before you can enter fully into being a Christian. Paul is absolutely outraged by this. He gets a little bit tetchy. And I think we lose some of it in the English tra translation because he's being so strong and vehement and uh, although in chapter 4 he doesn't actually use the expression God forbid but that's the, the attitude of his heart. Let's, uh, let's turn to chapter 4 of Romans and we are looking at verse 9 onwards. It's quite a lot of stuff to read, let alone get, get through, so we'll try and summarise it as best we can. Um, last week, we, uh, we, we, we saw the promise that we find in Psalm 32. And it says, uh, if we just go back a few verses in chapter 4 of Romans, uh, it, to verse 5, to the one who does not work, in other words, the person who's not relying on his works or his obedience to the law to be saved, but trusts him, that's God, who justifies the ungodly, that means 
He puts the ungodly in right relationship with him. Justification is, I am so put right before God, by God, that it is just as if I had never sinned, just as if I'd never been in the wrong. The past is finished with, I'm in the right with God now, simply because of what God does. So to the one who doesn't work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then we have this lovely um, quotation from Psalm 32. If you go to verse 9, Paul asks this question, is this blessing then only for the circumcised, in other words the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, non-Jews, Gentiles, which I guess is most of us in this room today. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? When Abraham was 75, God spoke to him and said, go on a journey and Abraham believed God and went on a journey God didn't tell him where he was going to take him but he said you'll have to follow me a day at a time and uh, he let, led him to Canaan and uh, God made several promises to him at that very early stage this is all in Genesis chapter 12 he promised that he would become a great nation, he'd have a great name, he'd be blessed and be a blessing to others. In fact, the whole earth, all the families on earth would be blessed through him. And to your offspring I will give this land. So it was promises about being a nation and being a blessing and it was a promise also about having some land. We know that that land is Canaan. Then a few chapters later, uh, sometime during the next 11 years of Abraham's life, Abraham complains to God about having no heir of his own. That a servant in his household is going to take over all his assets when he dies. And God takes him outside the tent and shows him the night sky. And he says, just as you can't count the stars, so one day you won't be able to count your offspring. And it says one very simple thing. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's as simple as that. He hadn't performed any ritual he hadn't made any sacrifice he, he hadn't done anything except go where God was calling him to go he hadn't been circumcised then the circumcision comes when he's 99 He's been on the road for a long, long time. He's been believing God for a long time. His 
belief, his faith, has been credited to him as righteousness for many, many years. And then, at the age of 99, God changes his name from Abraham to Abraham. And he says, you will be the father of many nations. Canaan will be yours forever as an everlasting possession. My covenant relationship with you is going to be sealed with circumcision uh, for all the males in your household. And rather than have, as it were, an illegitimate offspring through your wife's maid, I'm going to give you a son of your very own out of your wife's womb, out of Sarah's womb. Now, at what point did Abraham become righteous? At what point was he acceptable to God? At what point did he become part of the covenant people of God? How did he get covenant membership? It wasn't through circumcision. It wasn't even through leaving his hometown in Mesopotamia and following God. It was when he went outside the tent and believed what God said. His faith in the promises of God. And if we go back to chapter 4 of Romans, to verse 10, how then was it counted to him, this righteousness? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. I just have to point out that this is the last point in the whole letter when Paul talks about circumcision. Uh, I guess we're getting a little bit tired of that. Um, it keeps, keeps popping up, doesn't it? Um, but the circumcision in his body was a badge of belonging. It wasn't the means of his righteousness any more than the works, the good works, the career of acts of kindness that, that we engage in. Uh, any more than they are a means of our being saved, these things are all expressions of a fact that is already in place. And it goes on to say uh, in the second part of verse 11, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. There's a very volatile mix of people in the church in Rome. And there could easily be a schism, a split between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. And Paul is at pains to maintain the unity of God's people. We're all one. There are no outsiders. There's no class A and class B. Uh, there's no division, or there should not be any division amongst God's people through circumstance, age, race, nationality. Any of the things that divide us in the world uh, should not divide us in the church. And Paul is at pains to remove any thought that circumcision is necessary. 
He says in another letter, circumcision and uncircumcision count for nothing. The only thing that counts in the kingdom of God is love. Sorry, what did you say? Faith, Faith? that's good, I like that. I think Paul says love, but that's great. Is love, that we love one another. We look beyond the differences, that being a Jew or a non-Jew, it just falls off the table because everyone is a precious brother and sister in Christ. There are no outsiders. We're all one in Christ. And Paul is at pains for this to happen. And he is talking here about non-Christians, sorry, non-Jews who become Christians, and he's talking about Jews who become Christians. And what he is saying is there's no difference between them. There's no, absolutely no difference between them. Now I don't know if you have prejudices. Do you have personal pr- prejudices? You're going to be very holy and say, no, I don't have any prejudices. We're all prejudiced, aren't we? In, in, di- in di- different ways. We see people and uh, we very easily judge them by their appearance. And there are other things that cause us to make value judgments which are absolutely not right. Does it surprise you who becomes a Christian sometimes? They couldn't possibly be a Christian. And we tend not to make that value judgment on how they live but on what they look like or what they sound like no one north of Watford can be a Christian <laughs> it's you know the middle land it's barbaric up there gosh they're all pagans um, actually it's a miracle when anyone becomes a Christian isn't it whoever they are and in today's generation particularly we're in huge need of revival Uh, this is apologizing to dogs but our nation is going to the dogs Um, makes us barking mad sometimes doesn't it Um, but we we need a revival that brings all sorts into the kingdom of God that causes all sorts to respond to the gospel of grace. And Paul is wrestling with this because he doesn't want there to be any division in the body of Christ. And he's eliminating the need for any works, in other words, uh, what I do in obedience to the law, if I was a Jew, uh, or all the good deeds I do, he's removing the need for anything like that to earn my salvation. It's always a joy, isn't it, that once we're saved, we can get on with the acts of kindness because we know we're saved. It's coming in the right order. And what Paul doesn't want to happen is that the Judaizers, these... uh, Jewish Christians who are still caught up in the Jewish law and have got a totally wrong understanding of God's grace. 
It's wonderful, some of the things we've been seeing this morning about God's grace. Absolutely undeserved. How many of you received a pension in the last month? Okay, quite, quite a few. All right, I'm not sure what the rest of you live on. Um, <laughs> how, many of you, how many of you received a wage or a salary in the last month? Right, okay. There are a few wage earners in the church. That's good, isn't it? And a lot of generous pensioners as well. Um, you worked for that, or you have worked for, for that. You've made investments. You've actually done something, and you got what was due to you. You, you got what was rightfully yours. Okay, the different... Companies make promises about the interest they will give you, so it's always a joy when you invest 10,000 and you get 10,000 and tuppence back because interest rates are so appalling. Um, how many of you in, in this last month have received a gift? Not, not, not many gifts. Oh, more, more, more wages than gifts. Okay. Okay. Um, how many of you turned the tap, tap on this morning and got fresh drinking water? <laughs> Just touching something that David was sharing. That's a gift, isn't it? Okay, we pay water bills and things. But, um, a gift is totally undeserved, perhaps even unexpected. You don't work for it. Often... It does take you by surprise. What? You, you bought me that? That's awesome. Gosh, I thought my, my car was fine, but you, you bought me this new one. This is fantastic. And you say it goes at 300 miles an hour. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Gifts are great, aren't they? Have, has anyone ever received a gift with strings attached? Have you ever been given something that is a means, so you worked out later, of buying your love or trying to get you on side? Is it a bribe? You're too smart to give in to anything like that, aren't you? God's gift of grace comes without strings attached. we can have a debate about that later because clearly there's the call within us, birthed by the Spirit and called by the Word, to be holy people, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the gift of grace comes without any strings attached. And we receive it, and some of us think there must be some catch in this. This is far too generous for there not to be a catch. But God's grace is unlimited, it's unending, it's unconditional, it's awesome. Because all we have to do is receive it. We just receive it. Paul says in verse 13 now, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world didn't come through law, through, through the law, all 613 rules that there are, 
but through the righteousness of faith, through the making right of a person before God through their faith alone. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, in other words, if you've got to obey a lot of rules, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, the job of the law is to show us how bad we are. The laws of God show us our inadequacy, our inability. We can't please God through simple obedience. Imagine obeying all 613 rules. You, you can't do it. You can't do it. And so we find that the law exposes our sin. It makes us face up to our helplessness before God. It does show us how to live before God, but it shows us that we can't do it. We, we need God. We can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. And where there is no law, we're not aware of our sin. We need the law to point out our sin. So if I, uh, if I tre trespass into some, some, somebody's orchard, um, I'm gu guilty of trespass. I've got, gone into it perhaps unawares uh, and I'm gu gu guilty of trespass. If there's a sign up that says no trespassing and I still invade the orchard, then I'm not only guilty of trespass but I'm guilty of transgression. I've broken a rule. I've crossed a boundary. I've done something that I shouldn't have done. And that's the job of the law. It shows us how bad we are. And clearly the law cannot save us. The law, says Paul somewhere else in the New Testament, is a school teacher who's bringing us to Christ. He's a pedagogue, the uh, the personal tutor of a Greek schoolboy who, look, who looks after him, who takes him to school, collects him afterwards and ta takes him home again. But the law cannot save. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, in other words, grace is available for the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. In other words, the person who has believed God and taken God at his word. Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You, you and I were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We might have been physically alive, but we were spiritually dead. We couldn't do anything to save ourselves. And God brings the dead to life. There was no spiritual life in me, but God created spiritual life. Where there was nothing, where nothing existed before, he brought spiritual life to birth. Isn't that amazing? And that, that's a, a hint of what Abraham has done uh, so sorry, of what God has done with Abraham's son, Isaac, 
was as good as dead and God saved him through substitution of the ram and Brit brings him <coughs> back to life again. It's a clue of what God's going to do later, isn't it? When, when he brings Jesus' son back to life. And then as this chapter comes to an end, we have this amazing example of faith. This is one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, I think. It may be some of your favourite, uh, one of your favourite verses or passages. Verse 18 onwards. In hope, Abraham believed against hope. In other words, when it was humanly impossible, when it was totally, totally impossible for Abraham to do anything, for Sarah to do anything, for anyone to do anything, he still hoped because he was trusting God. God's promise was that he would have offspring. <coughs> He'll be the father of many nations. And he is 99 and Sarah is about 9, 10 years younger and they haven't had a children but he's hanging on there believing God. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith. Isn't that incredible? That's the ministry of the Spirit in him, isn't it? He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. I don't think there's anyone here who's 99, but some of us feel that our bodies are a bit 99-ish already. We look at our own body and we despair. Especially if we're still hoping to be a father at 99. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Some of us feel like that in the morning, don't we? When, or perhaps halfway through the day and a bit nearer to bedtime. Since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. This lady is not only post-menopausal, she is totally, totally infertile. It's absolutely impossible for either of them to produce a child. But Abraham, in the stubbornness of his faith, is still trusting God. Is our faith like that? Do we stubbornly hold on to the promises that God has made us? No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now there's a clue there that when our backs are up against the wall, nothing has happened but we're still trusting what God has said. The clue seems to be, the key seems to be to give glory to God. Instead of focusing on the problem, to focus on God. Now that's easier said than done because we're normally caught up in the pain and the agony and the anguish of what we're going through. But he gave glory to God. Why? This is, if you haven't underlined this verse in your Bible, underline this. This is verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Fully convinced. 
The Apostle Paul said something similar, didn't he, in uh, one of his letters to, the, uh, to T Timothy, which I've got written down on one of these pages somewhere. I can't find it now in a hurry. Um, but it was, uh, I am persuaded that God is able to keep what I have committed to him. That's one tra translation. That God is able to look after me because I've handed me over to him. Another tra translation is to turn it round a bit and to say, I am persuaded that God is able to keep, to look after what he has entrusted in me. In other words, the gift of the Spirit that he's put in me. He's able to keep it and guard it and stop it from being lost. So, Abraham's fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. In other words, this isn't just a story for us to say, okay, I've re read it, it's good, I'll give it 10 out of 10 and mo move on. But for ours also, there's a lesson here for us to have the same simple, stubborn faith that insists on believing God even when the reality of things says the opposite. A 99-year-old man who's impotent, a lady who's about 9 or 10 years younger, who's barren, they're still believing God. Still believe in God. And one day, laughter is born. The promise is kept. Their faith is vindicated. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So, just as profound but simple as Abraham's faith was, so our faith in the crucified, risen Jesus is as profound but as simple. God has said, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and was raised to life for your justification to put you right with God, you're saved. You can't say Jesus is Lord and not be saved. It's so simple. And there's no reason why anyone here today who hasn't made that decision can't make that decision today yes I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin I believe that he was raised to life for my justification to put me right with God that means I have eternal life I'm safe in God's hands I'm going to heaven when I die and I'm going to make a difference on the earth while I live God that's amazing that's amazing and you don't know how many lives your saved life is going to impact and change 
in the future. One man's stepping out of his tent and looking at the stars as God spoke to him. He believed what God said and it's affected all of us. Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Amen. Oh, yeah, I'll, pr I'll pray. <laughs>